you would grab a Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, where we'll be starting. Thought it was funny when Taryn said, uh, get the songbooks out. I think there was a little bit of, and they said, go ahead and get the songbooks out. And uh, in fact, my kids just kind of sat there. I thought, well, maybe we need some, it's been a while since we've done that, you know, so we're a little out of the habit. Good to see you this morning. I, I want to remind you, I was just thinking about this a moment ago. Uh, the reason we gather on Sundays, the reason we as Christians are here is because we are experiencing what is called in the New Testament the Lord's Day, a day that was sort of redefined for all of us by the fact that so many years ago, in a place far away from here, Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb was found empty. And so we gather and we remember him, and we gather and we edify one another on this day, on Sunday. It is a special day because it is the Lord's Day. And so I'm thankful to be able to be here with you, and it's good to see you this morning. It is our Q&A morning, which is not every Lord's Day, uh, but usually we try to do this on the second uh, Sunday morning of the month when we're all able to be in here. And uh, so this is actually the Q&A that I had intended to present in December, but if you remember, we had the uh, wintry mix ice storm stuff going on, and so we, we had to cancel this part of our service uh, a month ago. So this has been waiting a month to, to uh, be taught. So uh, let's work through this. Now, the first question that we have is, uh, if evidence of life is found outside of this planet, what would that say about our faith in the Bible? All right, so extraterrestrial life is what we're talking about. Um, over the past few months, there have been a lot of reports that have come out about the possibility of there being life on Mars in the past. So uh, there is some evidence that there has been liquid water on the surface of Mars. Uh, there have been riverbeds. There have been methane plumes found. There's organic carbon on Mars. And then we actually have, this is kind of a fun little black hole in the internet, if you ever have a few minutes to kill, just, just looking up the whole debate about whether there actually is evidence of something on Mars, because there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, people smarter than me that are arguing about that. But there are actually Martian meteorites here on Earth that have sort of unique chemical signatures that show they're from Mars, and they've come here. And so there, there's discussion about whether life could have been cross-pollinated between the planets or something like that. And of course, uh, all of this is important because water and uh, indications like this would mean that there would be a possibility of life on Mars. And the question that this person has asked is just what would the implications of that be? So uh, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we don't actually talk about this often, but the Bible, when it describes the origin of life and the origin of the universe, really does talk about God creating the heavens and the earth, which would indicate the entire universe, but really focuses on the origin of life on earth. So we might say that God created life in another place or he created other planets or something like that, but we'd really just be shooting in the dark. It's not anything said about that in the account of creation here. We would have a hard time proving even that if God 
uh, made life somewhere else, or even in how he made other planets, that he made them the way he made Earth. We just don't know that. What's specified here is really what is important to us, which is how the Earth and life on Earth was created. So when you read the account in Genesis 1, you have God creating plant life, you have God creating the heavenly bodies, and you have God creating animal life and ultimately man. So when this question comes to me, if evidence of life is found outside this planet, I think the first thing is there are different implications if we're talking about intelligent life. I I don't know that there would be a lot of faith implications if somebody finds bacteria somewhere. Uh, You know, that just doesn't really, I don't know, rock our boat the way it would if we found like an alien race. Okay, that would be a totally different thing. Uh, So... The question is then, are we talking about intelligent life, especially, and this is the other thing that, I'm sorry, I'm really, my wife is not in town. I got up, I got dressed, and I completely forgot to button this button. And so I'm trying to do it while I'm talking. I'm not good at it, so if I distract you, I'm sorry, but it would be more distracting for you to, you know, see my bare arm the whole time. Okay, so give me just a second. This is the hardest button to button. Have you ever noticed that? No, I don't think I need any help. I think that would embarrass me. (laughs) More so. All right, there we got it. Okay. All right. So what was I even saying? Okay. Uh, The uh, impressive or the important thing to me is, are we talking about intelligent life, particularly as distinct from animal life? Even animal life, where we would say, you know, like the equivalent of some kind of animal here on Earth, would be interesting, would be, you know, raise some questions, But it would be very different than if we found an intelligent race that was able to communicate or able to do some of the things that humans are able to do. Is there consciousness? Is there speech? Those are kinds of the questions I would want to answer before I got into some of the implications of that. But I want to point out that God does claim to be the ruler and creator of other parts of the universe too. Okay, That's what he means in verse 1 where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we don't have the story of how God created those. We do have an assertion of dominion. So God is in control of those things too. So the discovery would then have, if we were to say evidence of life is found outside this planet, that would have some implications for theories of the origin of life. Water is an essential part of life. The Bible teaches that. It's here in Genesis 1 about water being essential to that. But To me, if we did in fact find life outside this planet and we deny the possibility that God created life, that is what most people who are atheistic evolutionists believe, then it is extraordinarily unlikely that life would ever just happen. Okay, I think we're already there, okay, that life would just happen without there being any intervening force, but for life to happen twice in different places particularly in two relatively close parts of the galaxy independently, is extraordinarily unlikely. Okay, so if it's unlikely that life would just evolve, how much more likely is it that life would evolve twice? So to me, there would be some strong implications about that. But what I want to do in answering this question is not really dig into all of that, because a lot of that's just speculative. For me, the question is, what would we do if we found intelligent life somewhere else in the universe? What would we do? What are the implications of that? First of all, we would examine the Bible's teaching on creation, like we've been doing just now. I think we would have some renewed vigor in this. Just what is stated here and just how local is it? Okay, is this just talking about Earth, or would it have implications for other races? Then, 
it seems to me, and this is the interesting part of the question to me, you may be interested by other parts of the question, but this is what's interesting to me, we would begin to learn about their culture. That's what we would want to know as Christians is who are these, we want to call them people, but they're not people, who are these aliens, who are these, this other race, what are they like, what do they believe, particularly I would want to know, do they have an understanding of God or any sense of God uh, the way that human beings do? Is that something where God has made overtures toward them in a different way? I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians 9. The reason I really wanted to take this question on is because I want us to think, and I think maybe we have a blank slate here. If you think about how we would approach an alien race, it may help us think about how we should be approaching the human race because it gives us sort of a pattern for what we would need to do in order to think about their salvation and what God might want from them. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, myself, not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it, for, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul describes his approach toward culture and how if he's got a Jew, he says, I became like a Jew. Okay, If I was dealing with somebody who did not have the law, I became like one who did not have the law. What he is describing as being not just sort of a social chameleon, although he is saying that, he is also saying, I am willing to learn about and appeal to the culture of whoever I'm dealing with. There is a humility in this for Paul. He is not saying one size fits all in the way I teach people and talk with people. He is saying, I understand that some people are going to respond better to this and some to this, and I want to know and I want to try. So if we are going to have interactions with someone that we don't know or someone from a foreign culture, be they human or alien, we're going to have this issue. Who are they? What are they like? How do they think? We as Christians need to be students of culture students of our own culture so that we can appeal to the people who live in our culture and students of other cultures so that we can say, what do people in this culture love and value? What are some of the moral hangups they have as a result of their culture? What appeals to them? All of these are going to be influential in how we teach them. Culture is always a moving target, but I think this is helpful because if we were going to talk about an alien race, we would say, you know, there's nothing that's about compromising the gospel just to understand a, a group of people. Understanding a group of people is essential to the gospel. So I think we need to hear that because sometimes we tend to believe that learning about culture and then adapting to what is most effective with that culture, sometimes we think that's compromising. And I think it's important to see, no, that's what Paul would say is sort of evangelistic strategy. That's how you Go after people. You try to show that you are like them and that you understand to them. All right? Uh, we would appeal to them with the gospel if we found some intelligent aliens, of course. Uh, probably, just thinking through it with me, probably the best way to do that would be to form relationships with them, and that would be really hard. Can you imagine? Okay. Why would it be hard? Well, because we're probably nothing alike. Of course, you've got the language barrier for one, but 
I mean, if we have trouble with people who live, oh, I don't know, above the Mason-Dixon line, okay, then how much more are we going to have trouble interacting and relating with people from another planet? Okay? So you've got that where appealing to them with the gospel will, will be about building relationships and then trying to advance those relationships by sharing about Jesus with them. And then finally, we would need to accept them into our fellowship. What do you think it would be like to have an alien convert worshiping with us? Huh? Isn't that interesting? You know, wherever they sit, they might stick out. Okay? But I think it, all of this is the same pattern for what we already do. But to me, it's a striking example that sometimes we have to sort of change and adapt in order to spread the gospel effectively. And we have to be willing to accept people who are not like us. And we have to be willing to say, I'm going to meet you more than halfway for the sake of Jesus. So we don't know about any aliens, but we do know that there are humans who need the gospel. So my question, I know this is Q&A, I've given you my A, here's my Q. Are we willing to do these things for our fellow human beings? The people we do know who need the gospel. Are we willing to learn about culture? Are we willing to appeal to them with the gospel sometimes by building relationships? And then when they do accept Jesus, are we willing to truly accept and embrace them even if they're different from us? Those are the questions that challenge me. So I don't know about uh, the rest of the faith implications and I'm certainly not uh, all about the science of this, uh, but that's what I would say in answer to that question about what it would say about our faith in the Bible. Second question, are, are creeds wrong? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, <clears throat> are creeds wrong? Let's talk a little bit about creeds. Um, a creed is simply a statement of beliefs. And there is nothing wrong with stating what we believe. In fact, we are told that we need to be prepared to give a defense. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we're expected to be able to give a reason for the hope that's in us, to explain ourselves and what it is we believe, why we have hope. So... When you do that, when you state your beliefs, that is a creed. In fact, I, I think it's almost impossible to eliminate this idea. The idea that there need to be statements of beliefs or creeds. Every sermon is a statement of beliefs. Every book somebody writes is a statement of beliefs. In fact, every statement we make is a statement of beliefs. So if we're going to say creeds are wrong... We have to be very careful about the definition of that because it's very clear that even the Bible would advocate us being able to state what we believe. But when we talk about creeds, we're usually talking about one of two very specific kinds of statements of belief. One of those is what we might call the historic Christian creeds, that there are a series of creeds that came from certain councils, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, several others. Uh, this is the Apostles' Creed. Um, this, you might remember, in fact, it was just right that same week I was going to preach this last month, and now it's a month later, and we've probably all forgotten about this. But if you remember, there was sort of a flap at the uh, funeral of President Bush 
uh, because several of the presidents were saying the Apostles' Creed and President Trump didn't say it or there, people were criticizing him about that. And so uh, I actually had people ask me, what, what's the Apostles' Creed? I was all ready to talk about it and now everybody's forgotten about it. But this is the Apostles' Creed. You can see uh, there is not a lot here that we would consider controversial. It's just one of the historic statements of the Christian faith from very early on. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. By the way, the word Catholic here in early usage is not the way we would think of the word Catholic today. It just means universal. Later on, it comes to take on the sense that we think of Catholic today talking about a specific denomination. But in this era, it just meant the holy universal church, the, the universality of believers. So uh, this is a good example of a creed. You see a lot of the I believe statements. Okay, those, that's the idea of a creed. The word in Latin, credo, comes from I believe. So we're saying these are things we affirm as Christians. Usually, creeds like the Apostles' Creed and these creeds that uh, I mentioned, uh, the Nicene Creed, Chalcedonian Creed, were the product of church councils. You know, you've got people who come as representatives of different churches in different places. They have a problem. They argue about it. At the end of a few days, they come to an agreement, and they put out a statement, a creed. This is what we've decided we believe. Usually, creeds were a response to some heresy. Something went wrong, and so we say, no, let's get the creed so everybody will agree that that teaching is wrong. And so what happens if you study the history of them is they get increasingly specific as history continues because we have to get more and more specific to eliminate more and more heresies. The other kind of creed, though, that's the historic kind of creed. The other kind of creed is the creed or documents that a certain denomination supports. For example... You have the Westminster Confession, which is sort of the founding statement of Presbyterianism, and it's a Catholic, uh, Catholic, Calvinist document. Presbyterian churches widely accept the Westminster Confession. It is a creed that they follow. They will refer to it as authority, and it is considered a statement, a clear statement of Presbyterian belief. Uh, and so you have others where around the time of the Reformation, you begin to get statements that differentiate one group from another. So if you study through, for example, Luther's catechism, you get uniquely Lutheran thoughts. And so you can understand, if you study Luther, where Luther and Calvin part ways, and it's not that many places, but this is uniquely Lutheran, and it separates us from even the Catholics or the Calvinists or whoever, this is what it means to be a Lutheran. Or if you read the Book of Discipline, the Methodist Discipline, it is the method that the Wesleys taught as this is the method by which we're going to pursue God, and that's what makes us Methodists. So most groups have a book or a statement that is about defining who they are. This is who we are. This is what it means to be one of us. And that book is often referred to as a creed. So the origin of this question then is really about that part. One of the fundamental beliefs of early restoration leaders, I'm not talking about Reformation, that's in the 1500s, I'm talking about restoration, that the early 1800s here in America. One of the fundamental beliefs of those men was that they wanted to restore the New Testament church 
and go back to just following the Bible. And that creeds were the enemy of following the Bible. Creeds, they asserted, kept Christianity divided into different groups. And that if we got rid of the creeds, we could get rid of the division. Names divide, creeds divide, traditions of men divide. Now, they said Christians should be able to come to agreement just by following the Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 15. I want you to see sort of the, the basis of this. And then we'll say some things about creeds from, from Matthew 15. The restoration leaders believe that Christians can understand the Bible and that anything more than the Bible is unnecessary. We can all understand it. We don't need help. We don't need a certain document we're going to follow. Matthew 15 and verse 3, Jesus says, He answered them, Why do you, not, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus condemns the Pharisees here because they hold their tradition above the word of God. That's the problem. Okay? They have a tradition, and traditions are understandable. We're going to have certain traditions and ways we do things. The problem is that the tradition can become what we are loyal to in place of the word of God. That's what Jesus criticizes here. So Jesus is criticizing how people use traditions. Traditions can never rival God. And I would say the same thing about creeds. So I don't believe that the practice of having a statement of faith is wrong. In fact, it's been a very interesting thing to me. I'm not that old, but I have seen in my lifetime a huge proliferation of statements of faith among churches of Christ. It happened because of the Internet. Because when you go to some church's website, everybody wants to see, well, what, who are these people and what do they believe? And so most churches will have a statement of belief, even churches of Christ. This is what we believe. Okay? And that, that was something that did not happen when I was younger, and now I see it everywhere. And I don't believe that's wrong in and of itself. The, the problem I have, the difficulty I have, is that people can use creeds in a wrong way. How people use creeds is the issue. Not just whether we have them or not, because as I said, I think they're sort of unavoidable. So uh, creeds can be used as a test of orthodoxy. Whether somebody accepts or rejects a certain wording, you know, do you accept this creed? Do you accept, if I said it this way, are you on board with that? And if someone says, well, no, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, you say, oh, nope, you're wrong. Okay, this is the statement you need to follow. And that's very often the way creeds are used. Creeds are a test very often of whether someone is right. And I have an issue here because people made the creed. And if people made the creed, then people don't get to decide whether someone is right or wrong about that on the basis of their own creed. I'm also concerned because sometimes creeds can be used as an excuse for biblical laziness. It sounds like I'm saying being lazy biblically. I mean being lazy about our Bible study. I mean, after all, why would we study the Bible if really smart people who have already decided this have already decided for us? They've already studied it. They know more than me. You know what? I'll just go with what they said. I trust them. They seem like good people. Or 
you know, this is just what we believe. I don't accept it all, but I'm fine with it. And so I don't ever research what I believe or what God's actually saying. Instead, I just rely on what others have done. A lot of that stems from the fact that creeds are written by the historical winners. I'll give you an example. Back in the 300s, there was a debate about the nature of salvation, whether we have free will, whether we can do anything toward our salvation, or whether we're so depraved that we can't do anything and all we can do is just trust in God's grace. That was the debate between Augustine and Pelagius. And historically, Augustine, the original sin guy, won. And the church sided with Augustine and Pelagius was vilified. And so what has happened since then is Augustine's tentacles have gone out into all kinds of teaching. We still feel them today in America because of what happened in the 300s. And the question is, does that mean Augustine was right? The fact that Augustine won? The fact that a lot of people back then agreed with him? No, it doesn't mean he's right. And if I'm going to dig through that, I may have to have some some biblical diligence. I may have to focus myself instead of just trusting what others have said. Sometimes creeds are used to distinguish us from other people. That's what the restoration leaders objected to. What makes somebody a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Catholic? The statement of faith does. They accept this in addition to the Bible. So cut out the creed, cut out those distinguishing statements of faith and suddenly the divisions fade. We're not so far apart, but if we draw hard lines on the basis of, I don't believe this, I believe this, because of the statements of faith, we end up dividing. And finally, uh, creeds can be used in place of the Bible. So instead of proving what we do by Scripture, and I have seen this in people's writings, particularly from a denominational background, they don't bother proving it by Scripture, especially very often they don't have any scriptural backing. They prove it by the creed. And they will recite the creed as if it's scripture. And that is a concern for me because traditions of men do not belong on the same level as the word of God. That's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 15. So, are creeds wrong? Not in and of themselves, but they can be used in wrong ways. So, in this congregation, you need to know we subscribe to and we follow no creeds. My concern is about the unwritten creed. Okay, the creed that we don't, we don't have it out here, we don't refer to it clearly, but there's something there that appears to be about rules we've made up that are not really biblical. I'll give you an example. What makes a person faithful? We sort of have our own rules about that, our own ways of thinking. Usually they have to do with church attendance. Okay, faith may have more to do or may have to do with more than just church attendance. Sometimes people will ask me, what does the Church of Christ teach or believe? And I will say, I don't know what the Church of Christ teaches or believes, but I know what the Bible says. I will tell you what the Bible says, or this is what I believe. Sometimes we expect that we'll be able to line everybody up with uniformity on every passage, every interpretation, and assume our interpretation is the actual word of God. That is an unwritten creed. So that concerns me about what we do because creeds are not wrong, but if we act as though these things are true for us, that our unwritten creed is a test of orthodoxy or an excuse for us to not have to study 
or to distinguish us from other people or to be used in place of the Bible, then we're just as guilty as if we had a written creed. It's no different. So my point about all of this is that when we move away from creeds, we open ourselves up to a more robust form of discussion and diversity. But we need to be prepared for the fact that we might not agree about everything because a creed is there to ensure uniformity that perhaps is not really there. So that's what I want to say about creeds. Let's see, I've got... I think I can do it. Okay. My last question. Uh, Why do we use the term gospel meeting instead of revival? For those who don't know, uh, from time to time we bring in a guest speaker, and the guest speaker will come and provide a series of sermons for us We invite the community. Sometimes the goal of those efforts is to reach the community. Sometimes it's just to build us up. This is a practice that goes back to pioneer days when traveling preachers would go from place to place and they would stop in for a week or two weeks or sometimes even longer and all the people from all the denominations in town would come to listen. So a lot of denominations have the same practice. They'll bring in a guest speaker and do the same thing and they will call it a revival. And so the question is, why do we use one term and not the other. So I did some research on this because I really didn't know. Uh, And to some people, this is what I have read, the term revival implies that the church is dead and needs to be revived, or the church is struggling, and so they don't like that idea. By contrast, they'll say a, a, a gospel meeting is a series of assemblies where certain subjects are taught, and that's a little more neutral term. Some feel that the term revival uh, expresses like an emotional high. Okay, so we're trying to get people's emotions worked up as opposed to looking at Scripture in a really logical manner. That would be a gospel meeting. A gospel meeting is sometimes used because that's the purpose of our gathering. We're here to hear the gospel. Uh, And I think, I didn't see anything to support this. I also think this may have to do with the object, the goal of the effort. If we have a gospel meeting, that may be more about spreading the gospel in the community, whereas revival to me implies more about the church. You know, outreach is a gospel meeting, but revival is about us, you know, sort of being stirred up. That makes me wonder if we shouldn't at least consider rebranding some of our efforts, because if that's the case, what we do typically, at least in our time now, is a lot more about stirring us up than it is about reaching the community. Uh, It's been a long time since I've seen a lot of uh, gospel meeting effort, and I preach a lot of gospel meetings that really were about targeting the community. Most of them are about uh, edifying the church and teaching topics that need to be heard by the church. All right, so what do we say about this? There is nothing in the Bible about the terminology. In fact, gospel meetings, the practice is not even in the Bible. So we can't get to a point where we're like, this is better than this, or this is a Bible thing, we're calling it by a Bible name or not. Both of these terms are non-biblical. In fact, It appears to me that revival and renewal are actually a very common biblical theme without any implication that things are terrible. Uh, This is Psalm 85, verse 4. Restore us again. Will you not revive us again? Your people may rejoice in you. We even sing that song, Revive Us Again, that comes from this verse uh, because we want God's revival without any implication that we're uh, terrible people or that the church has died or anything like that. So uh, to me, this issue is not a scriptural issue. It's just a judgment call. I do wonder, and I say this with some cause, whether we're clear about what we're doing. And it seems to me that if our goal is to reach the community, then we ought to use terms that the community understands. And I can tell you 
from some experience that people over and over again will say to me, people who don't know our jargon, what is a gospel meeting? Okay, where another term might be helpful. In fact, I will introduce it to people. I will say, we're having a revival meeting. Okay, and they know what that means. Whereas a gospel meeting, they're like, I don't know what that is. It sounds like maybe we're all trapped in a room or we're having a meeting. Okay, and that's scary to people. I know business meeting, board meeting kind of things are not their favorite. Uh, so just because denominations use a term doesn't mean the term is bad. All right, we use the term VBS sometimes. It's not a school, okay, but we use that term sort of accommodatively because people know what that is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, provided we're going to do it in a way that's proper and scriptural. So I'm not really pushing for a change in terminology. After all, I didn't ask the question. I'm just saying it's something we should think about because if we're trying to reach people, we need to reach people in a way that's thoughtful and wise and engages them in an effective way. All right, thanks so much for your attention. Uh, keep asking those questions. We'll be dismissed for our class.